I started trading tapes a few years later. So when I was 12 years old, I started trading tapes and my friends, I, I was asking them to send me things and, and, you know, I would occasionally buy tapes, 10, $15 a pop. I did the HTML for John McAdam in exchange for tapes. And John had a very extensive collection. So I got a lot of stuff from him. Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling podcast, a podcast about classic pro wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, usually. Uh, before I get rolling with part two of Starcade 1983, I want to invite you to participate in our Facebook group. I want to bring on my occasional, usual co-host, Steve Generelli, to tell you all about that. Well, we've had uh, a lot of participation this morning. This is Sunday morning that we're recording it, and something that John and I didn't even have a moment to talk about. Uh, big, kind of a historic moment last night, the return of CM Punk to the WWE. You know, I, I, let's talk about that for a little bit. Someone brought up, like, okay, what's the biggest shock in WWE history, WWF history, or whatever you want to call it, of a guy coming back? And at this point... Literally, there can be no shock. I mean, <laughs> they brought that. They brought in Eric Bischoff. Right. Think about that one. That's they huge. brought they brought back Jesse Ventura. They brought back Bob Backlund. They brought back Sergeant Slaughter. Guys who just had incredible heat with the company. And you know, I mean, just the precedent is there. It's like you know, you cannot ever rule out a guy coming back to the WWF. Well, I want to give a shout out to D Diane Belmont, who actually started that thread, and she was asking if CM Punk's return was the biggest uh, hell has frozen over return, and uh, I had mentioned that Bruno was my choice, and uh, someone else mentioned Bret Hart, and, uh, and someone else mentioned uh, Anabolic Warrior, so there's been quite a few, as you said. Yeah, I mean, Bruno looked like it was impossible. He had nothing to gain by going back to the WWF. Same with Bret Hart. I mean, my God. They created an angle that led to the death of his brother, and he right. came back. Right. And so, I mean, CM Punk is nothing compared to that. Yeah, and but but just getting back to what happened last night, I don't know if you had a chance to see it, John, but uh, I, I thought it was just a wonderful, exciting moment, and uh, I'm really happy that it happened. I, I think that uh, CM Punk was, I, in my opinion, I think he was done wrong in, in AEW. I think that uh, he shouldn't have been fired for whatever occurred, and I'm glad that he can kind of end his career on a high note. Uh, that's what I'm kind of expecting is going to happen here. Yeah, CM Punk, when he left the WWF, it felt like he had no desire to ever go back. And if he ever went back, it would be because he needed the money. And uh, things have changed since then. I mean, I think, you know, time has kind of mellowed him a little bit. And he it feels like he wants to go out on a high note. And this is the road. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the WWE, uh, really, I mean, they're they're really kind of, Everything is gelling right now. Randy Orton returned after a lengthy absence last night, and uh, the roster is, is strong. I mean, they have a lot of good moving parts. And to add him into the mix as we're getting close to their big, big events, Royal Rumble and then WrestleMania, this is really kind of exciting. And someone like me who doesn't really watch their product, uh, I'm definitely going to invest some more time in watching their product. 
Well, same here. I have not watched WWE in a long time, and the reason for that is because they decided to have their big events like Survivor Series uh, when college football is on. And I made my choice, man. South Carolina Clemson was on last night, so I was checking <laughs> that out. But uh, yeah, I did hear that CM Punk came back, and um, yeah, I, I will definitely check out Survivor Series. It's you know, and like I said, I'm glad he's back, and I'm glad you know that that things worked out, and he's not just going to fail away he's going to have a a you know a, a goodbye a farewell that is worthy of him because I'm a, I'm a big cm punk fan i have been for a long time no i i am too i i really um i think even just his brief tenure in AEW, i really get to be a big fan of his because he really stood out over there he was kind of like a lone uh voice of uh good wrestling and uh, you know he had a, a huge presence over there you know, it's funny. I have not watched very much AEW at all. I, I don't even have... I, I tried to get into it, and I just couldn't. And that's not a knock to the company. It's like more my tastes have changed. You know, I can... You know, we're about to talk about Starcade 83, Steve, and I, I, I know I mentioned this last week, and I don't mean to, you know, run it into the ground, but I marvel at how fortunate we are today that I can just watch uh, Starcade 83 or Starcade 85 anytime I want to. I can go to my DVD collection and watch the the WWF Shea Stadium show from 1980. I can watch, you know, about 100 Madison Square Garden slash Spectrum slash Boston Garden shows. Like, I would have killed for that 40 years ago, and now it's just at my fingertips. And that's the thing. It's like, okay, I have so many choices, and AEW just, you know, just doesn't clear the path. I mean, especially during college football season. <laughs> there you go. And, and we, you know, we kind of left our listeners uh, with a cliffhanger last week. We yes. Reviewed, we reviewed most of Starcade, but we had the, probably the uh, two of the most important matches to go. And of course we have a lot of uh, listener questions we have to get to as well. Yes, exactly. Uh, we left off with the last two matches, the first of which is Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood against Jack and Jerry Briscoe with Angelo Mosca Sr. as the referee, and the titles will change hands on a disqualification. This was just a, a tremendous match. I mean, really good wrestling. Uh, I mean, to me, it was interesting just seeing Jack Briscoe, who you know, long-time 70s NWA champ, and now he's playing this arrogant heel. I mean, you, you could kind of tell just watching him that he was really uh, just relishing that role to play a pompous heel after being kind of Mr. Goody Two-Shoes for seemingly 100 years. Steve, I have a lot to say about this. You are, <laughs> I am 100% in your corner that Jack Briscoe, the, the, he was a heel for exactly about one year, okay? Mm -hmm. Like 1983, like, you know, about April 83 until he and Jerry went to the WWF. Jack, Jack Briscoe was tremendous in this role, and I feel like we missed out a little bit. Jack Briscoe, he could have come to the WWF in this role and challenged Bob Backlund, and he would have gotten over like crazy. I mean, he was great as a heel. And then we have Jerry Briscoe. Steve, I, I believe, I, I think you're going to agree with me here. There was no such thing as growing up without having that guy who was, you know, really cool, Jack Briscoe, great athlete. And then he, ha he has a stupid little brother, right? <laughs> we all know this family. We all know about five of them. And Jerry 
I don't even mean it in an insulting manner. Not at all. That was the role he played in that tag team. He's the stupid tag-along little brother, and he played it so well. I loved it. Yeah, he, he was very effective in that role. And, and, and as far as the team goes, I mean, I, I kind of see him in some ways as like the Buddy Roberts of the team, kind of yes, the real work. That's an excellent. That's an excellent point. I love that. Yeah, yeah. He, he's somebody who's going to do most of the wrestling, uh, take a lot of the, the worst parts of the match, kind of like take a beating. And then uh, older brother Jack comes to the rescue and, uh, you know, beats off the, the other team. Yeah, I mean, Jerry Briscoe, like I said, he's the stupid little brother sitting there smirking like he was the All-American in Oklahoma State, (laughs) not, you know, that's Jack, not you. (laughs) That's right. Or the former NWA champion, that's Jack, not you. And, and the fans were really into this match, but you could tell that they were a little bit burned out. Because, you know, just prior to this match was the huge Piper Valentine match, and you could tell that it was kind of hard to just like jump into another like hundred mile an hour race car after going through what they just went through. And that is my one complaint about this match, and really, it's my one complaint about Ricky Steamboat. Dun, dun, dun. I'm going to complain <laughs> about Ricky Steamboat. Ready? Because Ricky Steamboat gets into these angles where the heel does something horrible to him like randy right. savage tried to you know tear tear out his throat uh don morocco attacked him with a chair and hung him in the ropes for no reason the briscoes tried to break his leg right mm-hmm. and ricky steamboat comes out and his attitude is well now i'll beat you in a wrestling match <laughs> and he doesn't have that. Like, okay, this is it. The day has arrived where I get to kill you, and I'm going to kill you. It's like, no, we're going to wrestle, and I'll show you who the better man is. And it really felt like, again, that's my one complaint about this match, and it's my complaint about Ricky Steamboat in general. He doesn't have that, like, aggressive fire that you sometimes need in pro wrestling. Bob Backlund did the same thing. He'd wrestle uh, in a Texas death match, and he treated it like, like a regular match. And to me, even though this match didn't really have stipulations except for the, you know, it wasn't a Texas death match or anything, they, they Ricky should have showed a lot more fire, a lot more, you know, I want revenge for what you guys have been doing over the past six months. Yeah, and I will say that um, I didn't see all the preamble that led up to this match. I'm kind of just watching this match as just a match, and I would say it was was really the most uh, sportsmanlike or sports event type match of the card. You know, just one that you could watch as a contest and uh, just enjoy it for what it was. And and I think um, you know Jack, even though again he's a little long in the tooth. I think Steamboat and Youngblood are both easily in their prime. You know, Jerry is just kind of like uh, in there. He's, he's the, the worker horse in the group. Uh, and you have Mosca as a referee. So it really had everything you would need for being a high caliber, exciting match. The buildup to this match was Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood were challenged for the NWA uh, tag team titles by the Briscoes. It was a good guy match. Right. And in the middle of the match, Jack Briscoe has Jay Youngblood caught in the figure four. And, you know, Jerry tries to break it up. And, oh, no, he falls (laughs) and he lands on Jay's leg. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's an accident. I'm so sorry. And, you know, Steamboat and Youngblood are like, "Eh, I don't know if that was an accident. And then they do a rematch. And once again, Jack has... uh, 
uh, Jay caught in the figure four, and this time Jerry's not pretending. He just jumps on the guy's leg and injures him, <laughs> and that starts the feud, and that's how the Briscoes turned heel, which was you know one of the most shocking heel turns ever because you know I at the time I couldn't imagine Jack Briscoe as a heel, but I am a big believer, Steve, and there are some guys you just don't turn. You don't turn Bruno San Martino. Uh, Mid-Atlantic, I know they did great business with Wahoo McDaniel as a heel, but you don't turn Wahoo McDaniel in the Carolinas. Jack and Jerry Briscoe, they didn't have that. And if you had had Jack Briscoe turn on Dusty in Florida in 1980, 1981, it would have done great business. Yeah, it, it would have, and and, J- and you're you're absolutely right. Jack Briscoe was one of those rare individuals who kind of almost transcended the sport of wrestling. I mean, he was so well respected and looked at as such a uh, outstanding citizen, and you know, great amateur background, a great professional, and he was you know like him and Bruno and Vern and. Harley, uh, to an extent, I mean, they were all looked at as this kind of higher echelon of wrestlers than the rest. But to see him go heel here is is quite unique. Yeah, yeah. He when he was NWA champion, he had not. He was a subtle heel sometimes as NWA champion. Like he would go into Houston and wrestle Jose Lothario and you know do some heel ish stuff, but never cross the line. I can't tell you how how much praise I have for Jack Briscoe. The first time I saw him wrestle, I didn't know what work rate was, but I knew this guy was something special. He just jumped off the TV screen, and he was only NWA champion for about two years because he didn't like the schedule. Mm-hmm. It was too much for him, right. and if I was an NWA promoter, I'd be like, all right, Jack, He's, he would have been the one guy I would have been like, okay maybe cut down on his schedule to make him happy. He was the perfect NWA champion, and it should have lasted longer. Uh, I I can't say enough good things about the guy. Yeah, yeah. when people look back at the 70s and the NWA, I mean, he's usually the first name that comes up as the the champion, the guy that had the belt, even though there were others that did have have it for a number of years. I mean, if we ever did a show, and maybe we should, about the top 10 wrestlers of the 70s, my number one guy would be Bruno. And my number two guy would be Jack Briscoe, no questions asked. Well, that shows you, you know, he's right up there, the higher echelon for sure. I mean, ahead of Vern Gagne, ahead of Nick Bockwinkel, ahead of Terry Funk, etc. Mm-hmm. Another problem I had with this match, and this will lead into the main event, Angelo Mosca is taking up way too much screen space at this point. <laughs> he's already had the big angle where, you know, he got stabbed in the arm, and now he's back in this tag team match, and the Briscoes attack him after the match. And just, you know, I don't know why he's getting this much spotlight. Yeah, I mean, we we know his son had gotten a, a big push in the Carolinas, you know, that maybe the year or two prior. Uh, you it know, was got, that year. Angelo Mosca Jr. Year? started in, in 1983, and, okay. and maybe that was it. Maybe they're like, okay, you know, his kid's going to be a big star. Let's introduce the kid this way. Yeah, and, and you know he's wearing his PWI T-shirt. Yes. You know, it, it, it's it's funny that uh, you know, like you say, they're giving him so much attention, so much screen time. But meanwhile, uh, you know, in a few months, he's up north with everybody else. At, he's with WWF in a few months. 
Yeah, and we will be talking about this. You know, the the worst uh, television announcer of all time. I remember <laughs> we already have this recorded, but you know, I mean, unless you for, unless you didn't see him or unless you forgot about him, Angelo Mosca was the worst TV <laughs> commentator of all time. And yes, the the guy you're like, if you're listening to this show and you're like, well, wait a minute, what about this guy? No, I've seen him, and Mosca was worse. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you on that. Really. <laughs> He was he was beyond. I mean, we'll we'll get into it. You know, coming. I want to say May June. We have a show already recorded about this, but uh, Moscow was just terrible. Yeah, the, the the referee, in my opinion, I am not big into the zebra NFL type referee shirts for wrestling. I believe in a grayish blue uh, shirt with the with the with the. Uh, what is it? The bow tie. All right. right I believe right. in that. That way you don't really see the referee, except Angelo Mosca is out there wearing this uh, fire engine, fire yeah! engine red <laughs> PWI shirt so that no one can miss him. Great. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, any, any thoughts on the ending of the match? Um, I mean, I like the ending. I, th- I thought, you know, good, clean finish. I thought the Briscoes going right after Moscow was kind of dumb. But uh, overall, it was a really good match. You know, I, I agree with that. And, and it was kind of interesting watching this. Uh, uh, as, as, as you're watching it, it, you know, they show the end of the match and the wrap-up. And, and then before you know it, uh, the credits are rolling. And you get, <laughs> you get to see uh, kind of the wrap-up. And I was surprised to see in the credits uh, Doug Dillinger, who later, I think it was the same Doug Dillinger, became head of WCW security. He's listed as a cameraman here. I, I, it had to be the same guy. As soon as anyone says, you know, Doug Dillinger, I'm like, oh, my God, he's a civilian. <laughs> Remember when Jim Ross said that on yeah. the 1989 Great American Bash, <laughs> which we'll be doing a show on? I mean, like I said, it, just, it cracked me up. Oh, my God, he's a civilian. And they <laughs> mood to kicks him. And then, anyway. <laughs> and then they showed, you know, they showed the credits, and then and then there was a lot of preamble, a lot of time with Gordon and Bo- and uh, Bob Cottle and uh, backstage interviews, and and and, and then one thing I, I have to mention to you, and I wanted to get your impression. What did you think about the guy that did the national anthem before the main event? I mean, I I, I understand that. Look, there, and Steve, to answer your question, I fast forwarded through. Oh my <laughs> But, you know, it's I do have it in my notes. It's like, you know, big capital letters, killing time as they set up the cage. And we're 25 years into an era where the cage is just hanging over the ring and you lower it and boom, cage match. You know, two minutes it takes to set up. Whereas back in the day, we were used to, okay, it's going to take 20, 25 minutes to set up this cage. And, you know, they're they're doing their best to fill up the time as they do it. It, well, well d- d- since you didn't see it, I'll, I'll just tell you in a nutshell, this, this, this large gentleman who sang the national anthem, you know, he, he's kind of a big uh, baritone singer. He's doing a great job with it. But right at the end, uh, he hits the final note of the national anthem and he kind of sang it like the Bee Gees would. And, 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 he, and he hanged his head, this long note, <laughs> long note at the end that lasted about five seconds. But I, the, the one thing that I kept saying to myself was, uh, was Glenn Gozo not available? Uh, apparently, Glenn was just too priced out for this promotion. He's busy on Thanksgiving anyway. He's going to wrestling somewhere. <laughs> I'm glad Brian picked up on that because, I mean, you know, Glenn Goza, I, I saw him in world class. I had my laugh and then I forgot about him. And then it's like, you know, 
Brian last brought him back on the 605, you know, the whole Glen Goza experience, if you will. <laughs> A whole generation got to learn about Glenn Goza, thanks to Brian. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. So now we're on to the cage match. One of the I, – I don't feel like this is hyperbolic. One of the biggest matches in pro wrestling history in 1983. I mean, you had – this had such a big buildup. It was in the magazines. You know, Ric Flair gets his last chance to regain the NWA championship from Harley Race. They built the whole promotion around this event, and this event was built around this match. It, it, it was, and um... – you know, uh, we have to talk about uh, Ric Flair's entrance. Uh, uh, first, they had some, uh, what were they call that when they put some kind of a visual effect near the roof of the arena? <laughs> what was that? Oh, that, that laser thing. The laser light show, that's it. Yes. Um, talk, oh, my goodness. Talk about, you know, us living in pilgrims, like pilgrims <laughs> back in 1983. It, it, it looked cheesy even back then, let's be honest. It, it, it did. I, I wasn't sure what they were trying to put up there, but uh, I don't know if it was Space Mountain or the Starship Enterprise. I don't know, <laughs> but 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 they did uh, they did show Flair from a distance, and uh, you know you can see the smoke, and then he uh, does this pose with his robe on, and then they had the uh, of course they played the 2001 uh, theme that he's so well known for, and and then he comes to the ring to a huge ovation. I mean, Ric Flair, I mean, this was really his night. They built it up for, you know, the, Ric Flair. I mean, he wasn't born and raised in the Carolinas, but, you know, he's now the, the property of Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, and he's their their favorite son, so to speak. And, I mean, really, the, the fans loved him out there, and I will always question why they, especially after this event, they turned him back into a bad guy. I, I I think that's got dusty written all over it. I don't know, but you know what though it it happened. It kind of happened before Dusty even came back. Really? I mean, they had Rick as kind of a tweener, you know, wrestling Ricky Steamboat. Mm-hmm. Um, he was more of a babyface in '84 when they were doing the uh, Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes against Wahoo and Tully feud. Okay, okay, but but you know they. I mean, he absolutely should have been their version of Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I mean, that only made sense since they were based in Charlotte or based in the Carolinas, and he was their favorite son. Um, so, so basically, Flair gets in the ring to a huge ovation. There's a little bit of a delay, and then Harley comes to the ring. And and I know you've said this on some other shows where we were talking about Harley. To me, he, he just he really he really looked a little too long in the tooth to be kind of carrying off this like this is the fight of the century. I mean, we've already seen you know a lot of these younger guys like you know Piper and Valentine and a lot of these guys in their prime prime and Harley in his you know, red white and blue robe in the crazy uh, um, st- steampunk look with the dyed uh, you know uh, the facial hair chops. the mutton chops. I mean, he did, he just looks like a retro from like the 1890s i mean he just to me to, i mean you know i love his wrestling I, I love him he's a hall of famer one of the all-time greats but even in even in 83 i mean i i think he looked better in 87 against hogan i'm sorry to say it I, i'm not sure about that i mean steve <laughs> you're you're a you're a way nicer guy than me and i'll just tell it like it is in 1983 when i learned that harley race had regained the nwa championship i couldn't believe it it was just something i didn't want to see any more of <laughs> and and then 
you know, and he was just too old. He I, he looked too old in 1979. Never mind 1983. And again, you know, covering my tracks, yeah, Harley Race was an all-time great. I'm not going to deny that. Ten of me couldn't take on Harley Race, right? In my prime, but he looked too old. I remember uh, getting a, an advanced copy of Harley Race's book, which was a little bit of a disappointment, to be honest. And this is like 20 years ago, and he was really bitter about having to lose the NWA championship to Ric Flair and never getting it back again. And really? I was taken aback. I was like, come on, man. you got to be kidding me. You really thought you were the best choice to be NWA champion in 84, 85, etc.? I-, I thought, you know, if anything, Harley should have been like, wow, you know, I'm really grateful to have had this, this additional six-month run with the NWA title instead of him, like I said, just being really bitter about it. I, I was taken aback and surprised because, you know, I've said before, I understand why they put the the belt on Harley Race, you know, when Ric Flair apparently wanted some time off and they they wanted to, you know, build up this match, but I would not have put the the title on Harley Race. I would have gone with Dick Slater or Greg Valentine. I I guess the only argument I can make about that is I know one of our people in the Facebook group did bring this up. They they did like the the fact that you could uh picture it as Harley Race representing the seventies against Ric Flair representing the eighties and That's a good point. Of, you know, kinda of like one door closing closing, one door opening. I mean I, I guess I could see it that way, but but I, I guess I, I'm on your on your uh, same page with you, John. It just seemed like um he he did look too old to be in this this tremendously important match. He did, and when he was in the WWF in eighty six eighty seven, I mean, he stood out as being the guy who you know wasn't the bodybuilder and you know just didn't really what's the word I'm looking for. He he stood out as kind of like this old guy with a pot belly, and people are kind of like you know why am I supposed to think Hulk Hogan is going to lose to this guy? But, 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 you know, to his credit, those matches with Hogan were exciting. The match with uh, matches with Duggan that were exciting. I mean, he really had a lot of decent matches considering. But, uh, but anyhow, let's get to this match. Well, let me throw this in really quick. I, yeah. I, I say all that about Harley Race, and I'm not always the, the world's biggest Hulk Hogan fan, but I feel lucky that I got, I got to see live Hulk Hogan versus Harley Race twice in the Boston Garden. Like, I'm glad I didn't pass on those shows because now in 2023, I can say, wow, I saw these two, you know, king of the mountain level legends go up against each other twice. Yeah, and you and you were entertained, right? You enjoyed those matches. I definitely did. And Harley worked his butt off, and Hogan, you know, really the Hogan ego trip uh, was just on a roll because he dominated the first match, uh, bloodied up Race, and then you know Hogan beats him clean, and then Race attacks uh, Hogan after the match while Hogan's posing, and Hogan comes out and demands a Texas death match the next month to get revenge, and then he dominates that match too. Yeah, I, I honestly, until he had that major uh, injury where he crashed through that metal table on Saturday Night Main Event, uh, I, I thought a lot of his WWF matches were really good. But let's get they back were. to let's get back to '83. Uh, w- w- little did we know when we saw the great Gene Kaniski enter the ring, <laughs> what a major role he would play in this match. <laughs> You know, I I was going to say, and this is in my notes, people act like Gene Kaniski single-handedly destroyed this match. Yeah. 
that's an overstatement. Yeah. But he really he got in the way a lot. Like there's no reason for Ric Flair to to you know step between Ric Flair and, and Harley Race as Ric Flair's going in for the kill, and he did it multiple times with both guys. And it's like, you know, what are you doing? It, it, you know, it, I'm not gonna. People act like he ruined the match and he didn't, but he was a major negative. I'm sorry. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I guess the way I'm reading this from from watching the match, I guess no one ever really took the took the time to tell him, hey, by the way, the match you're refereeing is a no DQ match <laughs> where anything goes. So, and and, I, and maybe he wasn't watching their shows. I mean, that's probably the case. He I mean, he probably didn't even live in the area. He came in from somewhere else, you know, Vancouver or wherever he was living. But yeah, if they had just told him, is this is a no DQ match, anything goes, just stay in the corner, stay out out of the way until you're going to do a pinfall. That would have been great, but I guess nobody told them. Well, and if you're Kaniski, you're probably saying, well, they, they flew me in 3,000-something miles for a reason, and it's not to just be a, you know a plant sitting in the corner. But True. I didn't understand it. I mean, Gene Kaniski was not a big name in the Carolinas. Yes, he was NWA champion 14 years ago. <laughs> And, you know, the Carolinas were not his base. So, I, you know, besides, okay, he's a former NWA champion. Like, you know, what else does the average person watching in the arena or watching on TV, you know, what do they know about this guy? I mean, there, there, there was literally no point. Well, I, I think I think you just answered you know the question. Uh, the Booker of the night was Dory Jr. and who did Dory beat to win the NWA oh, title? Oh, that's a good point. That's a very good catch, Steve. But but but, but he should have. Dory should have told him. You know, you're you're. This is a no DQ match, and and he had no clue that it was. <laughs> yeah, you're right, and you're you're right. You know what? Dory was the Booker, and he was probably. I mean, to this day, Dory's probably grateful uh, for, to Gene Kaniski for you know uh, doing the honors, and this is probably one way Dory wanted to, wanted to pay him back to give him a big role in this card. Right, right. So enough, enough about beating up on poor Gene Kaniski. Uh, I, yeah, my, I, 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 one thing though, my my intent coming in mm-hmm. was like you know to defend Gene Kaniski a little bit okay. to say, oh, you know, he's not as bad yeah. as the internet made him out to be, but he was pretty bad in this match. Oh, oh, yeah. And um, but but and I will say, once the match got going, I, to me, I thought they were going at a very slow pace, like a glacial pace in this match. Oh. I, that. that that's just how I just saw it as somebody just coming in out of the cold to watch it. It was, you know, there was a point where I had this match rated in the top 10, uh, top 10 match of the 1980s. It was an excellent match, but it was not that good. I can easily now name 10 matches better than it. Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, as far as the matches on this card, I think it was probably maybe the third best or it could be the second best but uh i would put it in second best behind the the the, uh, the behind the dog collar match oh oh yeah and and uh you know it, it, once they got going i mean i mean around the 7 minute mark i mean harley kind of picked up the pace and and like we said last week you you mentioned how greg valentine was one of those guys who was a slow starter i think harley was was the same way once he kind of got going a bit he kind of put his everything he had into it and um, you know the blood started to flow uh, both guys uh, juiced and uh, you know they were doing some suplexes and some brawling and they weren't really you know heavily heavily using the cage as a weapon, but they did a little bit of that too. 
You know, Gordon Soley was really good on this show and especially on this match. Um, in the pre-match, you know, Gordon made the MWA championship. He made it sound to you like, okay, this is the ultimate prize in all of sports. He put the belt over big time. And during this match, you know, Gordon's talking about, okay, now Harley Race is now using that cage as an ally. It's almost <laughs> like a tag team partner for Harley Race. Gordon was great here, and he put over the cage, and he put over Race. I mean, I, I he definitely added to this match. And this was... Way past prime, Gordon Soley. Gordon, you know, put it in another gear for this night. Oh, I really did. And and, and to think that uh, six years later he would do the uh, I Quit match with Flair against Funk, and in between, really didn't have any high profile matches. Really to say, uh, it's just it's kind of heartbreaking to think that uh, he was just kind of like put to the sidelines after this. Well, you know what, Steve? I'm going to say something that's going to piss a lot of people off, okay? What's that? In 1983, Gordon Soley sucked. He <laughs> sucked. <laughs> and as someone who tuned in to WTBS every Saturday to watch wrestling, Gordon Soley was fucking terrible, man. I don't know <laughs> how else to put it. You know, he didn't know the names of the guys in the ring. Like, he'd know, and it's uh, Jake Roberts going up against uh, <laughs> side headlock by Jake Roberts. You know, it, it, just no preparation. Just a guy. The guy didn't give a shit. And for me, and, and now on this night, he's like 1978 Gordon Soley again. He was great. You, you know, maybe part of it was uh, because he was such a great announcer. And, you know, when he came into wrestling through Eddie Graham, and in those days, the Florida wrestling had this really sporting aspect, sporting element to it. A lot of wrestling was involved, a lot of amateur wrestling. Mm-hmm. The gimmicks were there, but, yeah, they weren't maybe the, the priority. But now here we are all these years later, and he had seen all that kind of garbage stuff in Florida in the early 80s. Maybe he was just tired of... Uh, where wrestling went to and got away from the the classic sports element to it. Now he finally had two heavyweights, Flair and Race, and a real match that he could call. I mean, that's an excellent point. I mean, and you know what? Like Gordon, he's a legend's legend. Okay, you know when he first started doing the announcing, he would you know show up at the gym and have wrestlers put holds on him, so he knew what he was talking about. And I assure you, 1983 Gordon Soley was not having any of that. Absolutely but, not. Uh, but you know, he's he's a legend's legend. It's just that you know every legend uh, at some point. It hits the wall, you know? Um, Bill Bill Belichick, New England Patriots head coach, you know, I, I started this podcast... It was the third quarter. New England, pa- the New England Patriots had zero points on the board again, as usual. And it, Gordon Soley was kind of at that point in his career where you know, okay, maybe he'll call a great game every now and then, like Starcade '83, which he did. He was a major plus on this show, but he was way past his prime. And there are uh, people that I've talked to, people I really, really respect their opinions, who have told me this is one of their favorite matches of all time. So, you know, maybe you and I are being a little critical of it right now, but uh, really, it is a good I match. I can't imagine someone saying, wow, this is one of the best matches of all time. Like, you know, how many matches have you seen? Well, well uh, I, I mean, uh, you know, I'll, I'll mention his name because he likes the match. Uh, Brian Solomon. He said this is one of his personal favorite matches because he's uh, he, he's seen a ton of matches. 
Well, Brian knows what he's talking about, and we all have our, you know, I, I thought it was a great match, but I, I cannot call this one of the best matches of all time unless maybe you're taking into account, like, I mean, I, you know what? I, I can actually defend that because I know people who call Hulk Hogan versus The Rock at WrestleMania one of the greatest matches of all time. And I was, I was just repulsed by the idea. and it, But, you know, it was the crowd. It was the buildup. Okay, I get it. Yeah, in in this match, I mean, they're they're telling a hell of a story, and uh, everything kind of is kind of coming to fruition. It's it's the anointing of Flair, like kind of the beginning of the modern era of Flair, uh, getting into the uh, cable age, and he's winning the title in front of this huge throng of people and in a closed circuit, and and pretty soon we're off and running with the JCP against WWF wars that would go on. So. Yeah, I mean, we were at the very beginning of that. And you, you also, Steve, you got to remember when Ric Flair won the title in 1981, there was literally no buildup. And it was almost like they went out of their way to make sure there was no buildup. They had the match in Kansas City uh, where Ric Flair was not a big name. Um, and then, you know, if you're a Mid-Atlantic wrestling fan, you're watching TV and one day TV comes on and, oh, Ric Flair's the new NWA champion with no buildup. And now you have all of the buildup in the world. I I will go as far as to say that no title change up until this point had this much buildup coming in. Like, definitely not Bob Backlund in 78. You know, definitely none of the NWA champions. I mean, it was it was very different. You know, you're absolutely right there. Uh, so, so you know, we've seen a lot of brawling in the match. We saw some high spots. Uh, you know, Flair, you know, years later, we would know he would get to the top rope and somebody would toss him off. But uh, in this match, uh, there's uh, he gets on the top and he kind of dives on the race and he kind of cradles him and then it gets the one, two, three. And, uh, and there's a huge celebration in the ring. There's a huge celebration, uh, and who's running the celebration? Once again, Angelo Mosca <laughs> is, for whatever reason, is stealing even more spotlight. But they made it, I mean, they did a great job. All the babyfaces came into the cage to celebrate Rick winning. Uh, Rick gets on Mosca's shoulders. They have Rick, you know, give his wife a hug at ringside. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a really well done, I think, celebration of, you know, okay, our, our adopted home, uh, hometown boy, Ric Flair, has has once again ascended to the top of the mountain. And I think, uh, you know, it, it ended the show perfectly. Uh, it was the, uh, you know, as far as the card itself, you know, you had highs and lows, but uh, it really built up to a crescendo with the main event, and, and they gave the people what they wanted to see. They, they came to see Ric Flair to win the belt. Yeah, they, they, they got what they paid for, and it was, you know... It was almost like a, a Spider-Man uh, adventure movie or an action hero movie where mm-hmm. the good guy at the end is the champion, the big winner, and everyone goes home happy. He overcame all the odds. He, he did. So let's take some questions now from the Stick to Wrestling universe. I'll let you start, Steve. Well, uh, I'm going to go right from the very top. Uh, John Ware says, try <laughs> to convince me that the dog collar match isn't the greatest wrestling match ever. Okay, what I need to do is get a DVD out to John with the Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat matches from 1989, and that will take care of all of that. I thought it was a great match, and 
the last time I viewed it, which was about eh, two or three days before our last show, uh, I liked it more than ever. Um, yeah, I, I, at first I remember you know thinking it was a little bit slow, but I liked it. Now I like it as much as the Tully versus Magnum I quit cage match. It was that kind of gritty, brutal match, but. Uh, not I, Steve. If not even including matches from Japan, I bet if I had to, I could name a hundred uh, better wrestling matches in the United States. And that's not a knock. If you're the 101st greatest match of all time, that's not a knock. Well, well, I, I'll say to John. I mean, I can see where he's coming from. I, I would say out of unique matches or bizarre gimmick matches, this is maybe you know I, I could agree with him. It's the best one. But but for me, if you said pick a wrestling match that you know you would say is the best, I, I'm more of a guy that would like just a traditional match. I don't I don't want to have gimmicks. I don't want to have you know props or weapons. I just want to have a match like like you know Steamboat against Savage. To me, that was as good as anything. Uh, so anyhow. Yeah, why don't you pick a question? <laughs> well, I want to say this, too. Sometimes in pro wrestling, you have a feud like Piper and Valentine where it's like, okay, a traditional wrestling match just isn't enough. Right. Uh, we're, we, you know, we're going to put these guys in a cage. We're going to give them a chain, whatever. Right. And it's going to be you know, resolved in a the most brutal match imaginable. I loved it when Bill Watts would say, if you have a, 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 a weak stomach, you don't want to watch this because <laughs> right. what makes you want to watch anything more than, you know, than something that someone with a weak stomach can't watch? Yeah, that, that is a great uh, thing that he would say because it would make you think you're going to see something really horrific. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to take Brian Solomon's question. I've yeah. heard the Piper-Valentine match was originally supposed to be for Valentine's U.S. title, but was changed to a non-title match once it was learned Piper was going to the WWF. Any truth to this? And my answer is I don't know, but I think they were booking the United States title, which was a very important championship in 1983 they were not taking care of the title the way they were booking with it first they have greg valentine win the title uh when a match was stopped due to blood slash injury which you're not supposed to do the mm -hmm. title only changes hands on pinfall or submission then piper comes out and cleanly wins a, a winner take all uh heavy stips match and doesn't win the united states title so at the time, I remember thinking this makes no sense, and they're not booking their championship correctly. I, I think, um, as far as Brian's question, um, I, I actually did ask Todd Gossett this question because I want to get Brian the answer. Uh, you know, Todd was kind of like uh, didn't really have a definitive answer either. But uh, I, I mean, to me, that does make sense. They, they knew Piper was leaving the promotion. Uh, you know, let's let's give him a win, and 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 uh, yeah, maybe they felt that you know, maybe they felt like Meltzer did that you know, whatever is going on in New York is going to flop anyhow. We'll get Piper back in a year or two later. So that could have been. My guess is that they I, they didn't know Piper was leaving. Piper didn't know he was leaving. I don't mm -hmm. think Vince McMahon had, had extended an, an offer yet. I okay. am just guessing and speculating here, kids. I'm not presenting mm -hmm. that as fact. But I do know that in 1983, Piper was no longer doing jobs. 
or at least that's what I've heard. He was no longer doing jobs, and why put the United States title on Piper when A, he wasn't going to lose it, and B, I'm ne- I, Steve, I am a big non-believer in the, oh, he didn't need a belt to get over. Like, okay, that's why Hulk Hogan <laughs> was WWF champion, because he needed that title so badly. Mm-hmm. But Piper kind of was a guy who, he was a, a, a great personality, a great wrestler, but I'm not sure if he really fit the bill as as the United States champion anymore. It was like, you know, it, it needed to be on someone else, in my opinion. I know he held it in 1980 and 1981, and then again in 83, and it symbolized the top guy in the mid-Atlantic area, but in a way, it was a, just a better fit on someone else. We, you make a great point. I mean, if they give it to him and he's not going to do any jobs, it just it just kind of defeats the purpose. So um, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Chris Tabor has got a great question. He says, what is a match that realistically could have happened on this card and should have happened? You know what? I think this card was so well booked that I felt like nothing was missing. I felt like, you know... Yeah, maybe you could have had Dusty Rhodes making a special appearance in the ring. Um, maybe you could have had Bob Backlund defend the, tit- the title if he was so so inclined. But I thought the, the 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 card itself was packed enough. There was nothing missing. My answer to that would be they they could have had just like one nice clean match, like a just a clean wrestling match. And uh, and I was thinking about um, Chavo Guerrero had worked there, I think, a few months earlier in the Carolinas. He's an excellent worker, and uh, and I think I think young Bret Hart actually was had been in the uh, Carolinas for a little bit during this time frame. Yeah, no, imagine- that was Barry Hart. Oh, was that Barry- calling himself Bret Hart for okay. reasons I will never understand? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, w- I won't give that spot to Barry Horowitz, but uh, Chavo against another, you know, good. Uh, maybe, maybe put Chavo against Scott McGee, and then just throw somebody else in that tag team match instead. Uh, it's just a good clean match, uh, kind of like how on the WrestleMania card you had Steamboat against Matt Bourne, which was pretty much a clean match, and Santana against Buddy Rose was a decent clean match without any kind of goofiness involved, just wrestling. You know, that's the thing. That's my one criticism of this card is that the undercard had a little bit. There was too much going on in the undercard. Like right. you needed to, you know, just have like like the first WrestleMania. Like the first four matches were just undercard matches, yeah. and that was it. Aside from the Bundy thing, but sure, sure. You know, you had too much going on with guys who had no role. But that's that's really my one complaint about Starcade '83. Okay, you have a question for me. Ah, yes. Scotty Grace, is there any truth to the rumor that Hulk Hogan was originally booked on the first Starcade? I don't think he was actually booked, and that's actually a really good question. Hogan was in Japan, but he was uh, advertised in Pro Wrestling Illustrated as being Wahoo McDaniel's tag team partner, not Mark Youngblood, against uh, Bob Orton Jr. and Dick Slater. So, if he was ever actually booked, I don't know. Like, you know, if he just, you know, took the booking and said, yeah, screw it, I'm going to Japan, find someone else. Right, right. Well, he he was on the poster, or like preliminary poster, and he, like you said, he was in the magazine. So it, at one point, uh, it just sounded like he would be like a special guest on this show, and it just didn't pan out. 
Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, his his first priority at this point really even wasn't even to Vern Gagne. It was to Antonio Inoki. I mean, that's where he was making his big money. And at least at first, you know, he was still making a lot of, J- of Japan appearances uh, for uh, New Japan in 1984. Right, right. Um, let me see. I'm just trying to get you another question here. Um, but yeah, here's one from Evan Ryan Tali asking, I know there are different different versions of the story, but had Harley Race taken the supposed deal from Vince and no-showed and showed up in WWF with the belt, how would that have changed this card in both organizations? Would Harley have feuded with Backlund? Would Hogan still come in and have the same trajectory? I think had Hulk Hogan gone to the WWF, um, I mean, they would have treated him uh, with, you know, with a, as a very special attraction, but at the in the end of the day, uh, I don't think he would have feuded with Backlund. I think you know they would have gone straight to Hulk Hogan versus Harley Race, and you know with Hogan coming out on top. But I think they would have done a lot of damage to this card and the NWA had had Harley taken up Vince's offer. I mean, it is just interesting to kind of speculate on it. Uh, you know, uh, I think Harley Race and Bob Backlund had a nice um, a friendship in real life, uh, you know, in, in chemistry and uh, had worked together m- numerous times. I mean, if, if the elder Vince had said to Backlund, hey, you know, you're going to drop the belt in December, you're going to drop it to Harley Race, I don't think he would have had any, uh, you know, uh, problem losing the title to Harley Race. And then, say, in January, if it was Harley Race, the NWA, or you know the the unified champion going up against Hulk Hogan uh, and then Hogan winning the belt uh I mean, it, it really, I mean, it would have, you know, kicked off the, the era, but, um, you know, looking back on it, I mean, Iron Sheik really did the job really effectively since he was the Iranian and that set him up for the Sergeant Slaughter feud, so... Yeah, I mean, we we did a whole show on it. You know, uh, one of the earlier shows I did with John Goodwin. I want to say like the thirtieth show we did. Okay. On you know you know uh, because Mass Superstar has been saying for years that uh, you know he asked someone you know why didn't I win the title? Why the Iron Sheik? And you know Pat Patterson said to him, "Oh, Bob wanted to lose to someone who had uh, amateur wrestling credentials." And you know, and I I. I believe that that the the best reason to ever lie steve is number one if it's convenient i'm Mm -hmm. kidding (laughs) (laughs) the best reason lies if you're protecting someone's feelings right Mm -hmm. and i think that's what patterson did with with superstar just said oh you know bob wanted this bob didn't care who he lost the title to he didn't when it, when it was time to lose the title, they just said, okay, this is the night, and he dropped it. And mm-hmm. I have no reason to think otherwise. Um, I'm not sure how we got on this tangent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, Bob, I'm sure, would have been, would have been fine doing the, doing the job to Harley Race. And the more I think about it, the more sense it makes. You know, Harley Race comes to the WWF with the NWA championship. They unify the titles with Harley Race being, you know, the guy. And then Hulk Hogan beats the guy to become the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely would have worked, but like I was kind of alluding to earlier, I I, I think still the Iron Sheik uh, getting beaten by Hogan, like the great blonde American, all-American guy beating the hated Iranian, I, I guess just for the for the pop culture MTV crowd, I think that was a lot better than, you know, uh, you know, 
the wrestling history books, the WWF champion, the, the new guy, the new WWF champion beat the old NWA champion. I, I think in you know Vince Jr.'s mind that that was all hogwash. Anyhow, let's start a new yeah. era. Let's you know let's go with the MTV stuff. So. No, you're right, and and it blew, I, I've mentioned before. I mean, you know, it's been almost forty years to the to the day, uh, less than a month away. You know, I mean, Iron Sheik wins the WWF Championship, and I did not see Iron Sheik as that as that guy. I did not see him as a major star. But you're right. In retrospect, looking back, you know, Hulk Hogan beats the evil Iranian dude. Yeah, it was just good marketing on Vince's part, but anyhow, you gotta- I, I don't think I don't think it was good marketing though. I think no matter who was the opponent on December twenty sixth, nineteen eighty three, yeah. that was the guy who was winning the championship. If Hogan had signed on a month later, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Arndorf would have been the WWF champion. It was just a, a great coincidence that Iron Sheik won the title. Yeah, it it definitely helped Vince out and got his uh, national expansion uh, running sharply. And it, 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 Iron Sheik got the break of his lifetime. He you know, will, will forever be known as a former WWF champion. And back then, how many guys could say that? You, you, couldn't, you could count them on both hands. David Ferguson asked, do you think the main event meant as much considering Flair had only dropped the title months before? Steve, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think it it meant a lot because that was the whole focus of the show was, uh, you know, Ric Flair had been in the champion and he was the local hero. And uh, like we said last week, he had been, uh, you know, abused and uh, and betrayed by Orton and Slater and Harley. And they put a bounty on him. And uh, so this was him kind of coming back against all odds to defeat this evil triumphant. And uh, I think the fans were really ready and raring to see him win his title back yeah i thought it meant it meant as much i think it was timed out perfectly because it wasn't like oh rick flair as nwa champion was old news it was like you know the guy got screwed a few months later and this is his chance and like steve said after everything that happened they had the the big match on tv in july where you know dick slater and bob orton jr collected the bounty and, and went after flair and injured his neck and you know this was the night and they they built it up so that race got what he had coming and Ric Flair reclaimed the championship that was rightfully his. Now I have another question. Jamie Waldrop asks, did you all feel that the Briscoes against Steamboat and Youngblood feud hit on the same level as the Kernodal and Slaughter against Steamboat and Youngblood? Just felt there was more of a synergy between the build to the final conflict versus Starcade 83. Well, I mean, the final conflict, you know, they had that show where they had to send thousands of people home, and the, the main event was Steamboat and, and Youngblood against Slaughter and Kernodal. So I think that was the bigger feud, even though here's the thing. As much as I respect Don Kernodal as a worker, I, I you know when he was the NWA Tag Team Champion, I was like, you know, what is this? Why is this guy, this mid Carter, suddenly you know half of the biggest uh, tag team in the world? I mean, the NWA Tag Team Champions, you know, they, they was the biggest championship tag team championship out there. And when he held it, every time he held it with Orton, with Koloff, and with Slaughter, it looked a little bit odd. But, I mean, it worked. And I, I agree with what Jamie is saying. I, I think that um, I think that Slaughter and Carnoodle was were more 
ominous uh, to Steamboat and Youngblood. I think the Briscoes were very respected, but more like thought of as kind of maybe that era's Rougeau brothers, you know, kind of uh, a good team, a, a great team, but but not like uh, Slaughter just was a killer. I mean, Slaughter was very dangerous, and uh, he brought that to the team. Yeah, here's what I was trying to say. <laughs> I, I I saw sl- Slaughter and Kernodal as Slaughter and a lackey. <laughs> I see go. the Briscoes as, you know, just this superstar tag team that's been around forever. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, a legit threat to be considered one of the top tag teams in the world. So I, I took the Briscoes more seriously is what I'm trying to say. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so uh, you have a question for you, me? Let's, yeah, let's do one more question each. Let me see. Okay. S.K. Lee Ask, if you had to bring in a celebrity or celebrities for this event like WrestleMania, who would you have picked and who would have worked with that audience? I don't now. Back then, the Carolinas didn't have professional sports. Mm -hmm. So you're either going to bring in a top like race car guy like Richard Petty, I think would have loved doing this. Uh, If you could get him, North Carolina coach Dean Smith Mm -hmm. or uh, North Carolina state coach Jim Valvano. Actually, Valvano was coming off a Final Four uh, championship. So, you know, if if you could get one of those guys, I know, like, wrestling back in 1983, even in the Carolinas, was kind of like, nah, I'm not going near that. You know, I'm not going to uh, appear in an ad for a strip joint, or I'm not, and I'm not going to appear at Starcade. But, you know, one of those guys, if you, if you could get them, if not, get a, a big-time race car driver. Well, we're definitely on the same page. My answer was Richard Petty, uh, the king. I think, uh, you know, coincidentally, uh, 20 years later, uh, uh, Kyle Petty, his son, who was a car racer as well, NASCAR driver, uh, he got involved with the NWO angle. He was involved oh, that's right. in that. And, and was, I think his car was a NWO car for a while. So, uh, yeah, I think that would have worked out just fine. Uh, so my final question was a, more of an easier one. Uh, Scott Miller asked, uh, what was the level of Gary Hart's involvement? I've heard everything from he was the main booker to not very involved at all. And apparently he was one of Dory's assistant bookers uh, putting this show together. That's my understanding of it, that Gary Hart and uh, Dory, Dory Funk Jr. was the booker, but he accepted advice from Gary Hart. Mm-hmm. And that's he, what I think. They did this really weird thing in the Carolinas where H&H Incorporated, Gary Hart and Sir Oliver Humperdinck were like co-managers. And talk about just, you know, cutting the nuts off both guys. And if he, I mean, if, you, if you're Gary Hart, do you need Sir Oliver Humperdinck's help that badly or vice versa if you're Sir Oliver Humperdinck? So I, I always thought that was just an awful, awful angle. Hey, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna just uh, wedge one final question sure. here. Uh, this is this is right up your alley. Eric Ford is asking: as a fan in the Northeast, did Starcade even register on your radar, or was it something oh you only learned about from the magazines after the fact? I knew about Starcade coming in because it was. Re- advertised in Pro Wrestling Illustrated beforehand. And one thing I wanted to mention, you know, I, I talked a little bit about last, uh, a bit about it last week, you know, 
Ole Anderson, uh, World Championship Wrestling, completely, almost completely ignored the fact that Harley Race was the NWA champion. And the Saturday after Starcade, you know, right away, Ric Flair comes out, the new NWA champion. You know, all of my questions were answered because I had no idea what had happened Thanksgiving night. And uh, I was really looking forward to that. I'm like, man, please have Ric Flair come out as NWA champion. Don't even hint that Harley Race is still the champion. And they, they delivered, like, within a minute of the show, where, like, Ric Flair comes out, new NWA champion Ric Flair. Ric, congratulations. <laughs> and, well, well, let me ask you this, uh, because, you know, we're, we're talking about a completely different era where, you know, especially if you're a wrestling fan, you might have to wait a couple of months to get the results. How long did it take for you to find out that Ric Flair regained the title? Oh, I mean, right away, the the, the, the next Saturday, he oh, was on you. WTBS That's as the right. new champion. Listen, I want to say something to everybody. The last couple of weeks, my voice has been just not good. My fall allergies have been a little bit out of control. So if I sound a little bit strained, I apologize, and I thank everyone for being patient with me. Hopefully, it'll be better next week. Steve, thank you for once again being on, on Stick to Wrestling. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to our next chance to do another great show now i'm the same here i want to thank everyone for listening i want to thank brian last for giving us this forum i want to thank uh lou kippelman for all the great work he does every week not just producing the show but making you know being flexible and making himself available to myself and steve and whoever the, the co-host is so thank you lou and once again thank you everyone else for listening uh, this has been a production Todd, of the arcadian vanguard podcast oh, network Good to hear it. Now, you had you attended Starcade '83. You had fourth row seats. I attended the closed circuit of WrestleMania, the first one at the Worcester Centrum. And I remember when the lights went out and there was like an an audible gasp in the building. Like, wow, here we're ready to get started. Like, what was it like being at that event? Like, were you overwhelmed by the bigness of it? Like I was. Um, not so much because I'd been to the uh, Steamboat Youngblood uh, Slaughter uh, Canodal thing that was even at, at the time that was the biggest show we'd been to. Oh wow! Uh, and uh, that the usually the Thanksgiving shows were that big. I mean, closed circuit pay per view was kind of a new thing. So I yeah. mean, I was seeing the house show. <laughs> oh wow! You, see, you, you saw know. you saw is this just another another night? The oh, there's the biggest. It, that's it was no, the that's wild. Show. It was the biggest show of the. It was the biggest show of the year, except maybe the uh, one earlier in the year, uh, which you know, caused the big traffic jam. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, we knew Flair was going to win the belt back. <laughs> you know, there was no way that it, there was any other result. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no. it was a. Uh, I always like to hear that, like what it was like in the building. Like, you know, I, I know someone who was at Madison Square Garden when Bob Backlund won the title and quote unquote, everyone knew he was winning the title on that night. And yeah, you're in Greensboro. Everyone had to know Flair was winning. Yeah, there was no way it wasn't happening. <laughs> Not with yeah. the build they'd given to it. Uh, I mean, if it had been a regular house show where they were pushing it, yeah, they go with DQ, you know, like they, you know, DQ count out, but not on a show of that magnitude. And the Thanksgiving show was always the biggest show of the year. <laughs> um, although it had been, I think the year before, it had been a Cadillac tournament. Or I can't I can't remember the exact years. Uh, I mean, one year, the first one I remember going to was uh, 
Dory getting a rematch with, with Jack Briscoe on it, and I'm thinking early, yeah, mid-70s. <laughs> uh, it sounds like 74 or 73, maybe. maybe. 74. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, it's 74. Here, I don't know. <laughs> All right, how old were you? Um, nineteen eighty-three. I was nineteen years old. Oh man! All right. So, you, so you started a, a little bit late, like I did. I didn't start going to the garden until I was sixteen or fifteen. I was about to turn sixteen, and so oh, I started going to. I started going to wrestling as I. I don't remember the first matches I went to because I was going to it my whole life. But um, yeah, at that time at Starcade, I was nineteen. Um. 73, 74, I was, uh, I was 10 or 11. So. <laughs> okay, and your, your parents or, or someone took you to the matches, which, you know, I didn't have going for me. Yeah, my, like I, I told you, in the last time we talked, uh, my, my dad was friends with the Murnix, who were the local promoters, so we went every week. <laughs> oh, man, I am, Several, I am very actually, jealous. And, uh, yeah, set, set, usually set ringside. Um like right front row ringside, front first or second row. Oh man, I, I am I am absolutely jealous of your childhood. So so everyone knew Flair was winning. Uh, what was your reaction when Flair lost the belt a few months earlier? I was shocked. Yeah, it was complete shock because we thought Harley Race had passed. You know, we thought the torch had been passed because um, as great as Harley was. He seemed old. Well, yeah. to a to a twenty year old, he seemed old. I, you know, that's, I'm a lot older than he is now. <laughs> but uh, at the time, I mean, he looked somehow uh, forty people in their forties looked a lot older back then. <laughs> they sure did. I mean, race. You know, I mean, he's on the road. He was a heavy smoker. He was a heavy drinker, from what I've heard. I mean, you know, so I mean, you're right. People just looked older back then. People kind of take better care of themselves. And I, I was the same way. I, I you know, I have a hundred percent respect for Harley Race and everything he did for the business. But you know, when he got the belt back in '83, I was like, you know, I don't want to see this again. Well, it's not so much I didn't want to see Harley because his matches were always great. And some of our favorites, you know, Jimmy Valiant was in his 40s. Wahoo was in his 40s. Johnny Weaver was in his 50s at that time. And we were still paying money to see them. I didn't expect Johnny Weaver to win the world title when he got his one or two shots a year. But uh, still always wanted to go see him. Uh, yeah, but, they protected uh, yeah. Johnny Weaver. Yeah. Um, he was pretty much mid card, but there was a couple of play, couple of towns where he always got the NWA title shot, <laughs> and he still uh, would main event from time to time in Raleigh and Greensburg, Charlotte. I mean, I'm sure you remember this. They did a big angle with him and Ken Patera in 1978 and i remember you know looking at it obviously this was about seven or eight years later after that but i'm like you know who thinks johnny weaver has a chance against ken patera but it doesn't matter if the fans bought, bought tickets i mean people were still buying tickets to see jackie fargo when he was uh, coming out of retirement in memphis like when he had to be in his late 50s <laughs> and, and still jackie, jackie looked rough man jackie looked really rough in the 80s yeah, he did. Not as rough as uh, Ralph House, though. <laughs> well, good point. Good point. I remember Jackie doing an interview saying he was coming out of retirement with the Fabulous Ones in 1982, and the man looked cryptic. He didn't look old. He looked, you know, way beyond that. 
I saw him wrestle in Nashville. I saw him wrestle Lawler in Nashville sometime in the 90s. <laughs> so imagine what that was like. Now, you went out to Nashville to see wrestling? I was in Nashville, and there happened to be Burt Prentice's show that night, so I went. <laughs> I oh, okay. I get it. <laughs> this, this, you said the 90s. I'm sorry. This is Burt Prentice's deal. Um, so so coming into the – Coming in, like, when did you kind of figure out that, okay, this was all a big setup for Ric Flair to win the title back? Pretty much as soon as uh, as soon as they did the angle where they injured him and his career was going to be over, and they, you know, double stuff pile drived him and all that. We knew he was coming back. <laughs> he was, of course. There was no, and, you know, I knew what was going on because, well, we all know that he was wrestling with Carlos Cologne down in Puerto Rico and it, you were, if you got the old, uh, what what was the old roller derby and wrestling sheet, real primitive sheet that was out, that was the guy that did wrestling eyes sheet, I was getting that. So I knew he was wrestling in Puerto Rico already. The wrestling eye guy was, I'm trying to remember his name, and I, I should, uh, Carmine yeah, he, had a, he, he was the guy that did. He did that? Yeah, yeah he had the, I uh, forget what, it, yeah, that was his. Oh, wow, I had no idea. I got to get Carmine on this show, man. So what what was it like when the guys from other territories came in? You had the Florida guys. You had the guys from Puerto Rico. Like, how did the fans respond to that? Well, the guys from Puerto Rico, well, the Florida guys that were in had already been in the territory for several months. Oh, okay. And Scott McGee had been there before, and Kevin Sullivan had been there before. I think it's the first time Mark Lewin, I remember seeing Mark Lewin. But uh, he had been in there a couple of months and was feuding with Johnny Weaver on the house shows. Um, just very Johnny Weaver and various partners. Uh, but uh, yeah, so really the only outsider was the only real outsider was Carlos Colon. And Abdullah was in and out of the territory. So That's right. I forgot had, about that. And Carlos came in about a year later for a short spell. But, you know, we knew Carlos Colon was from the magazines already. Now, here's the thing. When my experience growing up uh, and being a wrestling fan, like very rarely was I seated next to someone who knew anything about wrestling outside of the World Wrestling Federation. This is pre-expansion, you know, 81, 82, 83. Um, Were the fans in the Carolinas, I mean, were they a little bit more smartened up as far as like what was going on outside of their goldfish bowl? Uh, to an extent, because by that time, we were getting Dallas on TV. Ah. We had gotten Florida on TV, and we got WWF on TV. And if you had cable or a dish, you saw the other territories. And it was just random times we'd get other territories on. Like, at one point in the 70s, we were getting the Los An- the Olympic Auditorium shows late at night on on a UHF channel. But, so, you know, if, you read, the ma- if it was, you read the magazines, you know, they're months and months behind behind everything but you uh, kind of you had a clue who the guys were even if they'd never come in um and uh, yeah and by the end like a lot of people had cable so they were seeing tbs shows they were seeing uh you know what was it the madison square garden shows on the on the on uh, usa or before like, were they on usa yeah or is that still southwest on there then uh, I think the first Madison Square Garden shows, I could be wrong on this, were like middle to late 1981. Okay, so they were getting them. Um, 
So we saw some, we, we, you know, Florida was on for most of the seventies. So we knew what was going on in Florida, knew the Florida guys. Um, and by then people knew, you know, USA was running the, you know, Madison square garden shows. And before that, the Southwest and we were getting, we were getting Dallas and some odd reason we got Portland wrestling for a few months. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that is a bizarre fit. If I've ever heard one. Well, it was, it was similar. The accents were different, but, uh, you know, it's similar style. Um, I don't, it was on in the middle of the night, so I don't think anybody watched it, but <laughs> it was out there if you were an insomniac. <laughs> yeah, really. And not too many people. I mean, I didn't have a VCR until 1985, so I'm guessing, you know, not too many people could stay up or record Portland wrestling as it was on, you know, in the middle of the night. I still have my first VCR that my dad bought in 1978. That's a gigantic Betamax machine, and it still works. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I had a friend who fixed VCRs. He was like, you know, the, the VCRs now, and he was saying it's like 1990. They are disposable. They're no good. <laughs> you know, but uh, I mean, me growing up until I got WTBS, okay, we got – one hour of new new wrestling programming per week. We got WOR on at midnight, and that show would be on Channel 56 two weeks later. Okay, that was it, man. And unless it was a really clear day and we got all-star wrestling from Worcester, which rarely happened. How many hours of TV were you getting in like a random year, like 1981? 1981, we had the dish. So I was getting... Any territory that was on the on the dish, so I would say probably twenty twenty five hours worth, because <laughs> we were getting the Montreal shit, we were getting the WWF shows, we were getting uh, Georgia, we were getting Florida, we were we were getting Southeastern not on the uh, or or uh, we were getting Southeastern at one point. I know we were getting uh, AWA Dallas. We get the two hour Dallas show on the dish. That was on Saturday nights, not the Oh, yeah, the Fort Worth show. Yeah, it was not the syndicated show. Uh, there was a lot of outlaw groups. Uh, regularly, just in the local market, we had two hours of Mid-Atlantic. You had uh, World Class. You had an hour WWF. Uh, they were rerunning IWA shows that somebody was trying to run off of. They were from, you know, from the you know, mid-70s trying to pass off as a new show. There were a couple of outlaw groups that had TV for burst of time, but I, you know, I was I, I could get I could get Stampede on the dish. I could get Georgia. I could get Georgia. I could get the Fred Ward show from Georgia on the dish. Uh, Mid South, uh, California Championship Wrestling. That might have been later though. Yeah, that was like '85. Yeah, I know we'd gotten that. We were. Um, at times, we, you know, the Olympic shows weren't going anymore. And two hours of roller derby. Uh, trying to remember what else. But basically, if it went up on the dish, I could get it. But locally, there was probably about seven or eight hours of wrestling a week. My childhood sucked compared to your childhood. I, I am. My head is spinning right now. Like, I, I would have flunked all my classes, never played sports, never talked to a girl. I'd be sitting there watching wrestling all the time. Yeah, I'm going to go to the matches. You meet girls there, but some of them are scary. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Jim Cornette talking about when, when Bill Watts 
it, well, it was, it was Bill Watts who said it. it was Jerry Jarrett who said it to him. He's like, you got to have good looking guys on your wrestling show. That way the girls come out and see wrestling and the guys want to be where the girls are. Vince McMahon never adhered to that policy at all. I would say there was literally 99% males in the audience, at least at the Boston Garden. But I guess it was different down there. It was different down there because we had Rick Steamboat, Jay Youngblood, Jim Brunzel, uh, Scott McGee, a uh, whole bunch of young, good-looking guys in now, even some of the undercard guys. And uh, and uh, Flair, the girls love Flair. Um, yeah, want too many groupies for like uh, Wahoo. There was the older ladies that still <laughs> like Johnny Weaver because they had brought him in as a heartthrob back in the 60s. He still had his admirers. And, I, and, as, and as weird as it sounds, there's one girl I went to school with who had a crush on Tenru when he was young and here. And you look at Tenru, what he looks like, uh, you know, from the 90s on, and that's just kind of hard to fathom. Uh, it really is. I mean, all-time great wrestler, but not exactly a heartthrob, in my opinion. Well, he's a pretty good-looking guy in his early 20s, but, uh, yeah, he ain't anymore. <laughs> All right, Chris, uh, Todd, I want to thank you for taking the time and sharing the great memories. And I really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Yeah, no, no problem. Uh, any, any time, uh, any questions you want to ask me about the card itself or, uh, well, you know what I, I talked, as a matter of fact, if someone's not part of the Facebook group, one big question, one glaring question I have is, you know, what was Gary Royal and Bill Howard's role as far as like being with Greg Valentine? Was there a buildup, uh, on TV or anything? You answered it that in the well, Facebook Bo group. It. Oh, Bo uh, actually, it. Bo James. Okay, my that mistake. Was, Sorry, Bo. That was something that I didn't know. Uh, generally, if you want to get history around here, if you go between the two of us, we'll have one of us that had an answer. <laughs> but yeah, he but, talked. To, he knows different people that were in the office than I did. So he's, he right. talked to different people. <laughs> so there was no buildup, just all of a sudden, Valentine and Piper had these guys in their corner, and they, they really had no role, to be honest with you. Yeah, except to walk Piper down to the ring because his equilibrium was messed up. <laughs> oh, that's right. That makes sense. And, if, and Piper's going to have guys. Valentine's going to have guys. Todd, thank you again, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. You will be back shortly. All right. I look forward to it. I will talk to you soon. All right. All right.